expensive. She couldn't wear it. Did she know some people routinely spent much more than a hundred dollars on a bathrobe? She shook her head. It wasn't that. I've never done that in my whole life, she said. Put on a bathrobe and lounge around. When I get up, I have to get dressed. I think it comes from my own mother, this feeling that once you were awake, you shouldn't waste time. You should immediately get to all the chores you hate most. My mother had all kinds of disparaging terms for women who wore slippers. I grew up thinking that when you get up, the first thing you do is wash and brush your teeth, and then you get dressed. I treasure my mother for all the things she most enjoys, all of which I think have been reliably passed on to me. We agree, I think, on the important small pleasures. I would rather discover a wonderful new novelist than just about anything. I revel in the joys of cheap ethnic lunches. And, of course, I love bargains, from clothing bought on sale to used and remaindered books. We even agree on the important big pleasures around which life should be based. Children, family, work, writing, food, travel, and books. But I am also a creature of my times. A rich yuppie, my mother would tell you. Her slang tends to be a little out of date, but the mild contempt would come across. I am fully capable of enjoying high-end travel, expensive restaurants, premium cocktails, and wine that tastes better because you know how much it cost. Though the truth is, of course, that I have never grown up enough to take any of this for granted. Real grown-ups accustomed to the everyday luxury of expense account travel probably don't fantasize about room service and the mini-bar. They're too busy doing business with the in-room fax and high-speed internet access, or keeping up with their workouts in the fitness center. The small rewards, I think, of working hard and doing your job well are the occasional treats you give yourself, or the occasional extravagances that life throws your way and that you let yourself enjoy. My mother, Sheila Solomon Class, is 77 years old. Since my father died, she has lived alone in Manhattan. Technically, she is retired from her job as an English professor at Manhattan Community College, but she still teaches a writing course every semester, carrying her briefcase full of papers home on the A-train after every class and spending hours marking them up in red pen. My mother grew up in Brooklyn and never learned to drive. She's a fierce fan of the New York City subways. Many people consider the New York subway system frightening, too loud, too dirty, and very dangerous. To my mother... It is home turf, comforting and safe, and infinitely navigable. She has no sense of direction anywhere else on Earth, but put her in some subway station and her brain transforms into a global positioning system. We can take the IRT two stops down and then change to the Crosstown and get the R or the N, she'll tell you with confidence and with accuracy, and then if there's any doubt she'll fish an up-to-date subway map out of her handbag. My mother complains that her eyes are getting worse and worse. She has always insisted she can't read road maps or help with navigation, yet she has no trouble at all with the multicolor spider web of the world's most complex subway system. For my mother, the subway has come to represent an absolute matter of principle. It represents her deeply cherished independence, as well as her desire to abjure personal luxury and avoid spending money on herself. Even late at night, when almost anyone who had a choice might decide that the subway actually was a little dangerous, my mother proudly rides alone. Even in terrible weather, she refuses to take the easy way out by spending the extra few dollars on a taxi. Of course, I think my mother should take the occasional taxi. 
I feel that at 77, a retired professor is entitled to take a cab home after midnight from Midtown, a 15-minute ride. Instead of the A train, a 45-minute process involving a change of trains because the express doesn't run late at night, and of course then there's a dark walk on each end. Or she could call a car service instead of setting out in the snow and ice on yet another of her complex multi-train journeys. My mother considers me a total wimp. And anyway, she will tell you she hates taxis, hates the uncertainty of giving directions to the driver or straining to see what is showing on the meter or calculating the tip. When it comes to taxis, my mother and I are locked into one of those endless loop conversations, with me uselessly saying that if she can't see the numbers on the meter, she could just ask the driver. I also often wonder aloud if her eyes are too bad to take a taxi, how can she see well enough to maneuver in the subway? My mother counters that my problem is that I'm afraid of the city. It's not exactly that my mother is cheap. Well, actually, in certain ways, she's unbelievably cheap. Although she is profoundly generous with her children and her grandchildren, she absolutely does not spend money on herself. My mother allows herself no indulgences, and as far as I can see, no sensual pleasures. If I lived alone, I tell her, I would treat myself to fancy little gourmet items to eat, the kind of take-out luxury goods that keep New York City rich and fat. But I like Campbell's tomato soup, my mother will say, stocking up. She claims she no longer eats it right out of the can, saves washing a bowl, but I'm not so sure. My secret live-alone indulgences would probably involve whole triple cream cheeses consumed in one sitting— my mother secretly eats the tomato soup out of the can. Sometimes I think that even though my mother is a writer, she regards writing about herself and her feelings as just one more soft self-indulgence to avoid. She writes fiction, sometimes set in faraway places or long-ago times. She'll throw herself into researching the American Revolution as the background for a historical adventure, or reading up on the life of Louisa May Alcott for a novel about her childhood but she does not write out the cries of her inner soul. Or if she does, she doesn't show them to anyone. Needless to say, she would never go into analysis or counseling or join anything that smelled like a support group. She lived in the suburbs through the 1970s when everyone else's mother was in therapy or taking Valium or getting Rolfed or studying Est or some other kind of self-actualization. My mother lived through it all without ever understanding what the fuss was about. After my father died, someone suggested a grief group or a widow's group, and my mother reacted with fine disdain. Why would she need to talk about her private business with a bunch of strangers? It was her business to grieve. Grieve she would and grieve she did, but why would she need a group? As her daughter, I fully understand these reactions. I am not much for group process myself— and I have a bad tendency, which I probably got from her, to regard talking about oneself as a self-indulgence. Even so, Mama, here we go. You are probably the person I understand best on this earth, in some mysterious mother-daughter way. You are the person I come from, literally the person I came out of 47 years ago, your first child, your first daughter. I changed your life. I made you into a mother." You were standing at my side when my own first child was born, and I became a mother myself. In fact, my life has recapitulated yours in many ways. 
Here I am, midlife, mother of three, settled down in a couple with a bearded academic guy, busy with a full-time job I care about, trying to write as much as possible around the edges. Every single piece of that job description was also true for you. And yet from moment to moment and from day to day, my life is completely different from yours. Still, you drafted this road map, or subway map, if you prefer, and there are moments when I feel I am only following it. So let me push you now a little into the self-indulgent joys of self-reflection. Who knows, we may yet spend a week at a luxury resort somewhere, raiding the minibar and wearing the bathrobes and getting to know our inner sybarites. In the meantime, let's try to unknot a few of those endless argumentative loops and try to understand how we have shaped each other and have reacted to each other and reacted against each other as well. Sheila Every time my daughter Perry comes to town, it's a treat. She lives five hours away as the bus creeps in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she's a mother and a doctor and she heads Literacy Foundation, so she's busy. Hoo-ha, as we said at Brooklyn College in the 1940s, whenever we were in danger of being impressed. When I phone her, all too often I have to talk to a machine, even though I am her venerable old mother. I hate machines, for they have no respect for hearing difficulties. So, if it looks as if Perry will be in New York or nearby, we try to connect. If she's staying over, I put her up in my unfashionable but comfortable apartment in Washington Heights, where the mirrors and the brass are not polished, nor is anything else, and the beds are made so loosely your feet slip right in between the sheets without breaking your toes. This visit was notable because she was on a business trip, which included...